Hello! I think it's about start time. So this is Grimdark Fantasy RPGs as Cosmic Horror. Um, this is also the Capitol Ballroom on the Graduate Hotel second floor. If you think you're a different panel, I'm sorry. And, um, you know, I'll just run for it. Bye! Stratton, I made this terrible game called Pirate Borg. Uh, I also make battle maps as Limithron, and this is my first Necronomicon, and it's awesome. And you have a great hat. And I have a cool hat. I'm Badger McInnes. Uh, I'm art director and book designer for Stygian Fox, uh, and run my own little company, Squamous Studios, that publishes a card game called Keep the Shock Up that is not grim dark at all. <laughs> I'm uh, Kenneth Height. I'm a uh, role-playing game designer. Uh, Trail of Cthulhu, Fall of Delta Green. I think Fall of Delta Green begins to get grim dark, but probably the grimmest dark thing that I've done is a thing I did for Lamentations of the Flame Princess called Keylong, which is a fantasy riff on Cambodia during the Vietnam War. Um, because if you're going to go grim dark, let's go grim dark. Hi, I'm Mike uh, Mason from Kersium. I uh, uh, co-author of the current edition called Cthulhu, and I look after the Cthulhu line for a, for a small independent publisher called Kent. Oh, so as moderator, I guess, you know, I, I'm also a last minute moderator, so please bear with me. Um, <laughs> I guess a good starting point is, right, let's just define Grimdark for the audience, for how it works for all of you, since, you know, the original impetus for that uh, Appalachian is um, in the grim darkness of the future. There's only war from Warhammer, but it's obviously become far more general and more specific in its own way. Um, so just kind of get in the genre footing before we delve into the meat of it. In anywhere you want to go, I'm not really a cop. Can I just say, then, if, we, if we're talking about Warhammer 40k as the one of the origins of grim dark. Um, I think it's pertinent to say that I worked on the other thing I did also do was write Dark Heresy, the 40k world back in the original one. Um, and um, having worked in GW a long time and know a lot of you know, people who wrote, you know, Rick Priest, who wrote 40k, um, it might be called Grim Dark, but it was never intended to be. It's, it's a joke. It was, it was always, you know, tongue in cheek, you know, it's so dark, it's dark. Um, I think it's always worth bearing in mind, you know. You can't be grim dark every day of the week. <laughs> so, Mike, are, are you saying that this entire uh, seminar is a joke? It's based on a joke? It's entirely your interpretation. I think that makes it a punchline. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think that to make something properly grim dark, and I'm someone who's going to say anything can be grim dark if you play it right, and that is, of course, true. Uh, but for a game to be grim dark, I think there need to be two things that are pretty much present. One is your characters have to be able to die relatively easily. If you're wandering around, you know, bulletproof like a fifth level fighter, um, or you've got a lot of saving throws or resurrection magic, it's not grimdark, it's just annoying um, to you, the Superman, not to the universe. Um, the other thing that I believe a grimdark setting 
needs uh, and the setting established in the game is even in a world like 40k that has a ridiculously baroque structure uh, you have to fundamentally be thrown back on your own existential resources there's no community and so even if you're part of a legion of inquisitors or whatever really it's just you and maybe your buddies around the table that you can count on all the other inquisitors are yeah, their knives are out for your back. The universe is full of dark heretics of some sort, as I understand it. Uh, there's only war, that kind of thing. Um, and so if a, if a setting or, a, or the world that your characters are embedded in has any kind of social support, if you're more than just an atomized ideal role-playing character, a murder hobo, then the setting does not support grimdark play the way that grimdark is used now. Those, those would be my only real criteria. And with a good enough uh, uh, game master or a good enough rule set, you can probably elide the second one, quite frankly. But um, to, to me, if, if there's a world you can uh, uh, trust and you don't die easily, then you're not Grimdark. You're just regular old gaming. I, I, I just accentuate what you just said again in terms of the isolation. I mean, it's kind of be you, know, you and your two or three companions and the world and everything around you is against you. Yeah. It's not just isolation purely, it's everything is against you. I think that, that turns the screws onto that kind of grim darkness. I also find it to be a very uh, like visually inspired genre, if you will. Darkest Dungeon, Dark Souls, these video games are big inspirations for my illustration where it's like, oh, you could take a Pirates of the Caribbean, for example, but if you, you know, filled with lots of black inks and terrible monsters, all of a sudden, it's grimdark, you know? Lots of black metal covers. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. If it could be in an album cover, it could be a grimdark RPG. Right, yeah. I would say that there's also an emotional component that goes along with grimdark, and I think that one one thing that you have to not have, or at least a lot of, is hope in grimdark. Going back to your example, if you're just a bunch of murder hobos, you know in the back of your head that things are eventually going to be fine for me and my group because I'll just be able to slaughter my way through everything or I'll be able to solve the mystery or whatnot. But if you remove that hope that, God, I'm really not going to be able to survive this, or if I do, then my entire, I don't know, family is going to get wiped out, that helps lend, lend itself to the overall feeling of nihilism, which I think, at least for me, is is part of the whole grim dark pastiche, I guess. I feel like mechanically, too, removing and counterbalance does that. Yeah. If you're playing in a game where there's, you know, you're matching your XP level and picking monsters based on that, it's probably not that grimdark. Right. If yeah, there right. are horrible creatures that could kill you with one attack, it's horror. Horror is balanced. I mean, yeah. you know, Ten Candles is a great example of this. You know, the, the premise of the game is that you all die at the end of the game, and if not before. You know, it's just the end of the world, or whatever, you know, whatever version it is you're playing. The tone, the tonal aspect is set from the minute you sit down in, in that kind of context. And that, for me, that kind of is a really good example of you know getting the tone of the game that you want in terms of it being written and very dark. Yeah, yeah, one of the interesting things that, and this is where all definitions fall apart, because the real definitions are you take the things that everyone agrees are core to it, and then you build out until it falls over. You don't draw lines and say, on this side is just grim, and on this side is just dark, but here it's grim dark. Because to my way of thinking, 
uh, because of the sort of elegiac nature of Ten Candles, because your death is actually a tragedy, is a sad thing to be avoided, not just a selfish, ah, oh, I wanted that in a loot. Uh, therefore, uh, Ten Candles becomes a game for me of dread, not of grim darkness. And obviously you can run a Ten Candles in which you're just being, you know, eaten by, you know, brain zombies or whatever. And that would be just as pointless as all survival horror games are. But I feel like the sort of default of Ten Candles is really the, you know, we're telling the last ghost stories at the end of the world, and that is a sort of a noble action. And the nobility of it or the inherent humanity of it works against Grim Darkness for me. I I I think, yeah, I mean, I I get your point. I I wouldn't necessarily completely disagree with Kevin on the same level. But but also, I think that. Even with Grim Dark, you have to have a balance. Otherwise, it, you, it's like, it's like what I said, you can't be Grim Dark every minute of the game. Right, yeah. It doesn't yeah. work. And I, and I think in a, in a, in a, a non story game, it's easier to have that yes. balance. Yeah. A story game like Ten Candles is so much about one movie yeah. no, I, yeah, that you, you, you run into a, a problem uh, trying to ferry it in the middle. It's like, now the happy part of the ghost story. <laughs> Our fourth ghost story, as the candle goes out, is Topper. <laughs> Fun ghost story about a crazy aristocratic ghost who's drunk. Well, and I guess the point on balance gets to maybe this is, I think, one of the characters of Grimdark, or the argument that it doesn't work as well as horror from critics, right? That I obviously don't agree that, you know, you should bring up to some viewpoints to have everyone knock it down, um, or agree with it, you know, I'm just moderating, is, right, the, the balance point of, you know, the sort of concept of it's just so excessive that everything is instant death that all monsters are overpowered that like the world is already just a ocean of piss that you're boiling in um, that there is no hope or possibility of improvement but also balancing that it's not a reward structure that is built on the you know loot box model of if you grind away long enough, you'll get the rare loot, and then you'll just be able to resue the game and not play the game because nothing will stop you. And it's, you know, how do you put those hard barriers in, whether it's mechanical or story or just how you structure the game, you know, and I guess the kind of kicker point I'd throw on that is I always think of Gallo's humor as a huge part and how it works as cosmic horror is the self-awareness to some degree that, like, yeah, this is hopeless, but we should make this completely crazy and wrong. Um, so is that sort of the comment question to keep this rolling? I, I think that that exactly goes to uh, Lawyer's point that, you know, if it can be an album cover, right, that you have to have that sort of musicality or that sort of theatricality. Uh, to, it, and this is a, an aesthetic argument, it's not anything else. But to make it worth playing or engaging with for more than just one session, you have to have that quality to it that you talked about. Uh, the, the, the humor, the self-awareness, the operatic nature at least. Because otherwise it is just a, you know, it, it's an even more pointless dungeon crawl. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And believe me, you are digging pretty deep. I mean, you're Balrog territory in terms of how pointless your dungeon crawls can get already. Yeah, I, I, have a, I know a lot of people who have played Morkborg or bought it, and the, uh, it's just too dark for me. For me, like, I always want to be in Moria. I'm mm-hmm. like, dude, yeah. give me the staff and the Balrog, and we'll fight forever. But mm-hmm. you're right, you got to break it up. You need to have the give and take. Uh, 
you got to get out eventually. Um, good dark. I don't know. Do you? <laughs> You made a really good point, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> like, well, we can't, we can't argue with your, your good point. Well, I, I guess um, that sort of segues into, right, what are best practices generally, since I don't think we're addressing mostly game designers, um, although I think everyone on the panel is, and, um, you know, for trying to make that happen, you know, rather than... Um, you know, I think we can identify with good, uh, you know, sort of grimdark gallows humor, you know, uh, cosmic horror roleplay is, but how do you affect that or get that sense as we did joke before the panel, you can kind of do it with anything or there's always the meta level of, you know, corporate horror exists. Oh, yeah. You can yeah. just be like, wow, this is possibly designed by an AI. Um, yeah, Mothership <laughs> is his own form of grimdark, I think. I would say... Uh, you're unlucky to be alive would be the number one tenant for Grimdark for me. Hmm. I mean, like, the world's terrible, right? right. It's probably right. ending. If you run into anything in the game that you have to roll dice for, you don't want to roll the dice. I mean, if, you know, if you're playing a happy game or you're discovering loot and treasure and ale everywhere and your rolling is all positive, that's that, probably not Grimdark. I, I think that, that core recognition that you just tossed off that you are unhappy to be alive I feel like we are now sneaking around the side and Elric is now Grimdark right (laughs) because and and now we're getting you know perilously close and I do not endorse this do not tweet this people (laughs) perilously close to arguing that Vampire the Masquerade is Grimdark and that to my mind means someone is using something wrong I'm not sure what (laughs) (laughs) But, but, but at, at what point, you know, we, we, there's an emo corner, you just can't turn and stay Grimdark, <laughs> is, is I guess what I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> and it's somewhere around Melbourne, I think. No, I, I, I don't think unhappy to be alive, I think unlucky. Unlucky. Well, yeah. you, unlucky. You're, you're maybe, you know, you're a tough fighter or whatever, mm. you're not all sad and crying blood, but... And then through the course of the game, you discover through the story that it's even worse than you thought. Yeah. As yeah. you continue to go through the story, through the game, oh, this, this is worse than I even imagined. I should just kill myself right now. I really get more more. First off, the world's always ending and there's no mechanics provided for preventing it. Mm-hmm. And second off, when you get better, your stats can get worse. Mm-hmm. I'm like, that's perfect. That's, you know. Yeah. Well, I, I'm gonna jump on an odd one because you know we, we brought up Vampire the Masquerade. We've unsealed the crib. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, Thanks, Ken. Yeah, that I, I blame myself. I blame you I mean, too. I, That's fair. I, I blame you, Ken. <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I blame Mark Greenhagen, but he's not here. Um, right. As far as I know, if you are Mark Greenhagen, identify yourself. No. Um, White, White Wolf paid me a, a, a generous sum of money so that I could be blamed for Vampire the Masquerade. Now, so. <laughs> <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> But I think it's an interesting one because its intention was as a game to be a cosmic horror about being a vampire and trying to be human or be other or achieve transcendence, and yet it increasingly became an incredibly complicated war dump about the inevitable end of the world that also you're kind of a participant in a trolley on and that you're never really capable of stopping or changing anything because... One, there's no material that accounts for you changing things, and it doesn't want you to. And then two, because, you know, it, it is the setting, and the setting is the railroad. Uh, it actually is really dragon now that I think of it. Which I, <laughs> you know, railroads are cosmic 
but I think that there's something there in how it, it also is very album art-y. I mean, um, if I had the money to have Broad Street do art for me, I certainly would. I'm pretty sure he would not return my phone calls or talk to me. But, um, you know, that I, I think that's kind of the interesting example because it did take itself very seriously and there are people that will take it very seriously if you make fun of vampire and you'll be worried that they'll declare a blood hunt on you and it's just a very intense moment um, I'm worried for our lives after this panel <laughs> I mean White Wolf I think recognized what was I mean I know that the designers all did they recognized yeah. the sort of oh everyone's playing puffy shirt superheroes instead of the game we thought we wrote and when they wanted to write Grimdark they then made Wraith Yep. Which was very successfully grimdark uh, in a lot of ways and had a lot of the variants that we're talking about. It had the sort of, um, I mean, literally, you're unlucky to be alive because you're a cursed ghost who's bound to fetters and all kind of awful things. And then um, there is a player at the table specially deputized to make your life worse, which was a brilliant innovation. Um, so when White Wolf wanted to actually do grimdark, I think they did a they kind of knocked it out of the park. They did a really good job with Wraith. And the thing about Vampire, I hate to, you know, blame Mark and company for what happened to their little vampire game. Because whenever something becomes gigantically popular, uh, it gets adopted in all kind of weird ways that you personally might, you know, raise an eyebrow at, Mike Mason. Um. <laughs> Is this entire convention, perhaps? Um, so, I, I I feel like you know you can certainly again a, a, a dedicated GM and a good table can pull all the grim dark material out of even Vampire Revised or Vampire Third and build a super good grim dark vampire campaign out of it. And when I did Fifth Edition, I very much you know tried to shove those pillars up into people's consciousness and let them recognize that the game uh, but because and, and again we're dancing around this definition question because the question of the, the core story of vampire is so much about personal horror and uh, that the grim darkness of it almost recedes into the background because uh, to some level it has to because if you ever really internalize oh I'm playing a serial killer you would hopefully stop playing. Um, <laughs> I think a lot of it too is in a normal grim, grim dark setting. It's about the world mm -hmm. and not the characters mm -hmm. in a lot of ways. Yeah. And when you're taking a game like that where you're building a really intense personal story, you have like a stake and an arc you want to tell. And I, you know, uh, a shoggoth smashing you at, uh, when right when you walk in the room really ruins that yeah, arc. Right. And when you've got a uh, a grimdark uh, world you really don't want to encourage those long I don't know you want the arcs but you want them to exist with the world at the same time right. and then you want their shattering to be um, cosmically funny right? yes that, yes. that you know I'm the, I'm, the, I'm the one I have this beautiful destiny I've got my nine page backstory and my family that I'm seeking across the vast plains of uh, boiling piss yeah. ocean <laughs> um, and uh, oh I was just uh, mauled by a giant rat it's like end. you remember uh, Samuel Jackson's monologue in Deep Blue Sea where he's like blah 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 he's like oh here this is going to be a big and the shark eats him yeah, like, right, that's, yeah. uh, that's what yeah. we're going for yeah. Yeah. spoiler alert oh sorry I'll show myself up <laughs> cancelled <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, 
Wow, I am just having. Well, I, I have another thing I want to interject. Oh, I, I'm a really huge Darkest Dungeon fan, um, and I, one of the things I love about that game that I think does Grimdark really well. We talked about characters getting worse when you get better. When you do a dungeon run with that game, your characters they take on stress, and I think a lot of these Grimdark games manage stress and sanity. Mm-hmm. But also, in uh, one thing I like about that system is that uh, when you take too much stress, you get your little afflictions and bad things about your character turn into really bad things. So you might become paranoid or you might become, you know, you might start stealing the loot from your party. And I feel like those are things that aren't built into heroic RPGs that work really well in grimdark settings. Yeah, you you yeah. suddenly remind oh, go ahead. Oh, uh, you suddenly remind me of uh, Unknown Armies. Um, I'm not too familiar with the, the fourth edition. But the third edition, uh, third edition, third edition is the most recent. Okay, so second edition, uh, they take the uh, Call of Cthulhu sanity uh, mechanic and kind of uh, expand on it. So you've got four different tracks, and as you get exposed to like more supernatural, you become hardened to it, um, and then you begin to also lose your humanity. Mm. Yeah, the uh, the new edition uh, goes sort of the next step. Right. So, for example, and this may not be exactly right, but it's basically right. Um, the better you are at punching people in the face, the worse you are at relating to them as a person. Right. And you, you make that trade-off constantly. Mm-hmm. So, as your skills move along these sliders, it's like, well, I can either optimize myself to be a murder hobo or I can be a pro-social human being. You, and You know uh, Electric Bastard Land, Chris McDowell? He's got a character generation system where you roll for stats, and the better you roll for your stats, the worse your starting kit is. Oh, right. Uh, yeah. I don't like that way about it. Like, no one's going to be great. You ever, if you roll well, you kind of lose. You know? Sorry, you had a point earlier. Yeah. I, I just completely escaped me. Don't worry. It was, it was probably great, though. Uh, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was ultimately fantastic. Um, now, what I was going to say was, um, in terms of one of the definitions of Grimdark, it, we talk about the, you know, the world, we keep talking about the world being you know, against the characters and that's what's really important and that, and that. Yeah, I think that is a favorite month. Yeah, I agree. Uh, but I don't think it is the entirety of it. I think um, you can take any scene, um, locale or whatever, and make it grimdark. You don't need, the entirety of it all doesn't need to be grimdark for a grimdark game. Um, because one of the um, you know, one of the kind of you know hidden flavors here is that um, you can see beyond the window, you can see the world, the beautiful world out there, you just, but you are no longer part of it. You're trapped, um, and your you know, hope is outside the window, but it's hope you will never get. It's that kind of fleeting um, ethereal thing, and I think that may actually enhance the grim dark more than just it's all bleak and black and the, the darkness and. and, and there is no hope. You know, we talk about there is no hope, but I, I think there has to be yes, the idea of hope, even if there is no hope. Otherwise, it's flat. Mm-hmm. It, it becomes it becomes another dungeon bash in a sense. It's like here we go again. We'll get through this, and maybe you know, half of us will die, and I'm going to do the next thing, and then half of us will die, and become some new characters. And after uh, two, three, four hours of it, you're kind of done. You know, so I think there's got to be more. I think that you, think you have to have these other ingredients in to one keep people playing and two to enhance the conducts in a way. If you see what I mean, in the, in the counter in the counter way, does that make sense? Oh yeah, yeah totally. Yeah, you're like you kind of want to humanize the experience. Uh, I, well, yeah, I, I'm all for 
making it about the humans, you know, because they're, they're, they're the characters. You know, so. yeah, I mean, uh, another movie throwback would be uh, Children of Men. You know, remember that movie? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm trying not to spoil it, but basically, you can't have kids anymore. And in society, it's like dark and gray, and everyone's depressed. But that idea that children could be born again, like, propels the whole plot. You know, it's kind of kind of dark. I mean, when I did Keelong, um, I based it on a setting that was as green and dark as it could get, being, again, Cambodia during the Vietnam War. Uh, but, you know, right across the border in, you know, Thailand or wherever, things are normal. And that's mm. part of the, I, you look at our world, uh, everyone can probably just scratch their chins and think, where is the grim darkest place in our world? But elsewhere, there's Denmark, where everyone's just you know, eating pastry and hanging out with mermaid statues and nothing's wrong. Um, and the question, what part of what makes uh, Key Long work in my mind is that the player characters could have stayed home where everything was all right, but chose to inject themselves into this awful sewer. And they, you generally being Lamentations characters and D&D characters did it for ignoble, contemptible reasons. But, um, uh, that, that, that existence of the outside, you know, I think that if you play, you know, um, you know, people who live in the grimdark planet and the rest of the galaxy's nice, if they're born on that planet, that's a different story than if they're the Inquisitors sent to that planet. Exactly. Right? Yeah. The, I mean, it, you look at the kind of the, the kind of character arcs and the story arcs and that kind of thing. It, it, you, the, the example you've given is really good. You, know, you, you can be born of, of the grimdark or you can enter yourself in it. And if you look, you know, it kind of follows the kind of, you know, the classic template set by Paul Cthulhu in terms of, you know, you start with a character who's very average, very normal, um, not particularly good at any particular thing, you know, reasonable, very middle of the road. And then you watch as your character spirals downwards in whatever way, whether it's, you know, physically, mentally, whatever. Um, and that, you know, ultimately, you know, sets the template for what comes after in, in most of the games who follow that kind of suit. Um, and in terms of that grim darkness, you're right. It's, it's as you put, you know, in terms of Call of Cthulhu giving advice, it's that kind of like you you don't just kind of impose the grim darkness on the players. You allow them to bring it into that. You allow them, you <laughs> they, give them they a constantly control. volunteer for more. Of it. Yeah, you, yeah. You, you, what your, your job as a keeper is to just keep supplying the rope, and the players will hang themselves, and then, then, because that is the best outcome for the player because. They bring it on themselves, and then, and that arc, the story, in terms of their not only enjoyment of their character arc, has a, has a real sense of conclusion and meaning, rather than me just saying yes, because it's dumped on you, you're dead, has no meaning. So, building, allowing the players to build that meaning into their character in whatever kind of version, setting, or whatever it is, rather than just imposing, you know, pointless death here and there, it has because. After the first time, it's a shock. After the second time, it's dull. I mean, this, this I guess, is not at all relevant, so Fiona, feel free to slap me down. But, you know, when you said, if Ubu stomps you, you're dead, that's meaningless, as though that isn't exactly what Lovecraft meant. <laughs> I mean, to some extent, is trying to have a satisfying narrative experience counter to the ethos, certainly of cosmic horror, um, and possibly of Grimdark. And again, I am pro-narrative experience, right? I yield to no one at this table in my love for, you know, Sandy's game, right? But uh, 
the what Sandy did was he cleverly figured out how to tell human stories in the face of a utterly inhuman universe. And without that, I mean, we're just reading color out of space, which again is great, but it's not a participatory art form. It's a whole different thing that we're doing, right? Yeah, I'm not saying you never do it. I'm yeah. saying the habit revolves. It, it's, it's, it's very easy to do that. And, and, and again, and you shouldn't. You should yeah. save it for when it again has a meaning. No, this this was not an indictment of, of, of what you said. What, what you said was, to my mind, really pertinent, getting at the the the, the really productive hinge point between play at the table, the role-playing art form, and the philosophy of Cosmic Horror. Yeah. And of course, Lovecraft hated games and hated people who played games. Um, so the, the, the joint is not Lovecraft's problem. I mean, he said, I explained it a lot. <laughs> but for us who want to do both of those things, that is the best kind, in my mind, of creative tension. And outside Lovecraftian universes, does that, when you do a pirate board, is that something you've got in your mind that the world has to be, you know, a philosophical unity, or is it just, you know, pirate skeletons are awesome? Uh, I think in pirate board, there's an impending doom, but it's rising from the sea. Right. You yeah. know, if you're into the, the deep ones or Dagon, that kind mm -hmm. of thing. Yeah. That, that's, it is, there is that cosmic undertone. Uh, but I kind of feel like the two are, and maybe you guys can speak to this, but I feel like Cosmic Horror and Grimdark, like, there's a Venn diagram there, but they're not, like, a fully overlapped. Oh, no, yeah, yeah, right. Wow, how, what do you guys think? How, how do they overlap? I mean, I, 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 I agree with you that they're not the same thing. I, I, would, I would never categorize Warhammer 40K as Cosmic Horror. Yeah, definitely yeah, I mean, not. I mean, partly because it is, as you said, it's just a joke. Yeah, it's yeah. just a bit. And, you know, I love a good bit, but... Um, but I, I, you know, I'm on the panel. I, I didn't say this panel is stupid. I refuse to be on yeah. it. So I believe that there is that overlap. And I mean, it might be stupid. And, and, and well, yeah, yeah. or maybe you true. came onto the panel just so you could say that. No. <laughs> um, and 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 I think that overlap. What you know, Mike pointed out is that that is that sort of super pregnant meaning part of it which never even has to get to the level of play. Mm -hmm. You never have to address it in-game as characters. But it's there. Yeah. But it's yeah, always yeah. looming over your head that it's like, if all this is true about the universe, why am I doing this, is your question. And yes. then you find an answer, either, you know, well, because my dad will be sad if I don't keep, you know, being in Delta Green yeah. or whatever, right? <laughs> your, your, your drive, the thing that makes you keep going to that stupid basement, you know, that's... <laughs> The, the part that you know is meaningless, but you still do it. And that, I think, is sort of, it takes Lovecraftian nihilism and it transmutes it in play into Camusian existentialism. Mm -hmm. And that is, as far as I'm concerned, a philosophical journey worth taking at the table over and over and over again. Which is not to say that giant rising, you know, Leviathan is not just super great. Oh, it's um, great. Yeah. I, I, do, I really like this whole concept because it, oh, I, I have this a lot in the Dark Caribbean where you've got impending doom, big sea, sea monsters, there's treasure everywhere, but then the whole session is about what happened at the brothel or whatever, right. what, you know, what the pirates got in, like they were into some pirates in the jungle, we spent two hours and like they all get killed and it has nothing to do with the cosmic horror that right. was yeah. going on because the world was terrible. That's, yeah. Well, that goes to, back to the point about tension and you need in order to have to keep your players engaged and to have the game still be fun you've got to have some release along with that tension so mm. 
figuring out, you know, or going to the brothel and, you know, having that sort of mundane, uh, real world stuff, you know, within the context of the game yeah. happening. Real. Right, right, real. Um, that helps relieve that tension for a bit. So when the cosmic horror or, or group dark stuff does come back, it has a lot more impact. Yeah. If you're hitting your players over and over again with the grim dark, then you just, like you were saying, Mike, you just become numb to it after a while. Well, it is point. I've got a question. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I'm 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 thinking of games of Morgog I've played and seen and other games that are normally called grim dark or whatever. And every one, I mean, this I could be wrong. Okay. And I'm happy to be wrong. But every one of those, the players were laughing a lot. Oh, absolutely, 100%. Yeah, so what, what is, because we talked at the start, we were defining Grim Dark as this, you know, not really a comedy. But all the games are a comedy. I, honestly, I couldn't agree more. The reason I made this game is we took a break from playing Pirates 5e that I was running, and my buddy was like, hey, I kickstarted this book, we gotta play it. And we played three sessions of Mark Org, and it was the most fun we had in like five years of playing RPGs. And I think because, I mean, like you said, there's that humor there. You're like, it's so, I mean, like in Markport, one of your starting weapons is a femur. Like there's 12 weapons and one of them is a femur. Yeah. And and you can get a, like a desiccated corpse as one of the 50 inventory items that are listed in the book. It's like, it's dark, but like, it's funny to have beat somebody to death with a femur. Like that's a pretty funny thing. It's got like humor and Yeah, play. it's like, I mean, I would almost say Army of Darkness is like, Evil Dead, they're like, it's kind of grimdark, but like, it's funny, you know? Yeah, no, I, mean, I, I completely agree, and I, and, and I just think it's a good point to make. Yeah. I would hate someone to go away and having, you know, having, you know their, their introduction to role playing as, as today, <laughs> and they go away. <laughs> 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 or people. <laughs> you know, and they go away thinking that, you know, they, they've got to all sit there and, uh, you know, um, the most depressed, depressing four hours. <laughs> I mean, I think you can, I've definitely heard some more court live plays where they took it really seriously. And you can definitely go there if you want to, you want to listen to black metal the whole time and be, you know, in the world. You can totally do that. But also, you can beat somebody with a femur. It's pretty funny. I mean, I, I think this sort of maybe is a, is a general point, but uh, I think that role-playing games succeed if they weaponize a, a human instinct or a human emotion. And Gallo's humor, I mean, humor, you know, they, they say humor began as monkeys baring their teeth against the threat, and then we just sort of, you know, evolved reasons to do that. And uh, socially as well. And the notion that, you know, our response to danger, or a very common human response to danger, is Gallo's humor, is black humor, you get a game like Morkborg that weaponizes that and gamifies that in the same way that, you know, Call of Cthulhu weaponizes um, uh, 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 almost despair or um, the, uh, you know, agonized choice, um, the way that uh, Gumshoe broadly weaponizes uh, hoarding. <laughs> uh, dun Dungeons and Dragons uh, storifies and then weaponizes hoarding. But these are all very common you know, human responses that then really are channeled well by a game or by a game rule set. And I think that that human impulse to crack jokes about beating someone to death with a femur, yeah. uh, which can lead to some dark places, do not Google any of this, um, is still something that at the table is so freeing and liberatory, mostly because 
when we leave the table, we know we are not going to be beating anyone to death with or without a femur. And that that sort of uh, element of freedom and nihilism and freedom from boundaries is then blended with the, well, even in this freedom from boundaries space of the table, the boundary is you're all going to die horribly. And that you know, creates exactly that energy that you're talking about. And yeah. a game that finds that energy and, and pushes on it, I think is a better game of, or a potentially better game than one that just says, I don't know, two by 20, whatever. I also think it goes back to your kind of tongue in cheek thing that Mike was saying, like if we all lived in the 14th century, we wouldn't be playing more and more. No. You know? <laughs> if we, if it was the 1920s and you know, things were tough with some world war or something, we probably wouldn't be playing Call of Cthulhu settings in that time it's like an escapism thing and more of like picking out the parts that we want to enjoy yeah. well and I guess that's maybe interesting to me with the gallows humor and the concept of purpose and also of hope right is I think maybe a through line for all of this is I mean it's impossible to character character dies if you one know it's predetermined that you'll die and two that like you basically have no chance, but simultaneously, and, you know, I'm stealing from the fact I've been on the island kind of before, um, and, and, yeah, but, uh, is, you know, players will invest in things. Like, the, the ritual of gaming is that you spend time at a table, that you hang out with people that I assume and hope that you enjoy spending time with. Um, if you don't, I... I can diagnose a problem that's not the game you're playing. Um, <laughs> you know, at the end of the day, everyone does become invested in gassing each other up in, like, you know, actually by outcomes of dying, you know, skating by the skin on your teeth and really believing in the myth of their own character. And I think that that's in some ways where cosmic horror works and also is one of the hardest things to explain to people of, yeah, I play a lot of trap games in which I run very traditional and realistic camping. Because, look, once you've gotten leeches and you've learned that, no, if you don't put a tarp down and sleep in the wilderness, you're miserable and you're just slowly dying from very mundane things, that existential horrors seem both more real and more palpable because it's, wait, this is something that's not just a bear eating our food. This is not whatever. We've crawled into a cave and now we found a golem-looking thing. What the fuck is that? You're like, and normal life is already terrible, right? Now you're taking it a whole other level. But also believably transcendable, right? right like yeah. it, it's something where if you get enough money or you get enough resources or you just learn how to do orienteering by looking up shit in your spare time, which I don't necessarily suggest that you can surmount those obstacles, which makes the then sort of like bigger conceptually obstacles become more real for people, you know, in the same way that People love goofy NPCs, you know? Like, if you can just do a little voice, people love that stuff. And then, in a weird way, that makes the world more grounded. And I think maybe that's one of the missing things to a lot of ideas about Rick um, Darkness, is that, you know, I going back to the original Warhammer, which is one of my favorite games, I'll be honest, um, you know, there is the idea that colonial, the space marines were a joke on some level and all the early artwork is them as kind of mall cops being like mobbed by everything. <laughs> like, you know, there where there's like the, the text where it's like, you are the most elite fighting force that has ever been assembled and no one can stand against you and then it's just footage of just them being eaten by orcs, them being eaten by yeah. tyrannids, them being eaten by or crushed by pirates, etc. that kind of highlights this is imperialist propaganda from a failing authoritarian state, and it's funny. 
And it's funny that you also try to make something good in it because there's no way that you're going to make the Imperium good, but your survival or investment in some space actually is meaningful because you're doing something. Um, and I think that maybe is a wrap around for it for some like last comments before we go to the audience. Does that sound good to everyone? I'm not a great time manager. That's quiet. We have a lot of time. Oh god, we have so much time. Time yeah. flies when you're having fun. Um, interlude. Prepare for questions. Or did anyone have any like last comments they went to before? You know, outstanding. No, okay. We're, audience, how are you doing? Yes, what? Uh, hey, uh, you touched a bit on this when you were talking about the problem with railroading. How do you balance hopelessness with still giving the players something to do? That's a good question. I mean, in, in my experience running things like, I mean, I've been running a Fall of Delta Green game for like three and a half years. It was meant to be a six month game, and it's, it, it, stop being that. Um, the way that I do it is by allowing the players to decide what their characters are invested in and feeding that, you know, basically you it, 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 put it absolutely metaphorically, each player is like, I like vanilla ice cream. And so the game becomes how much strychnine can I put in the vanilla ice cream <laughs> while they keep eating it because they like vanilla ice cream, right? So the players will, will say, I want a game that's about, you know, my relationship with my dad. <laughs> and my job is to take that relationship and make it as painful as possible for them to play through so that they're getting what they want, what they asked for, what they're driving for, but the themes of the game still come true. Um, you know, again, it's Fall of Delta Green. No one gets, you know, a pony. And if they got a pony, the pony was raised on human flesh and is sacred to Shubman Gorth. Um, so the, the, the trick is to always give your players their head. Of a, one of the great, beautiful things about playing in any Cthulhu game is you can say yes to 99% of player requests and it doesn't alter the game materially a bit. You know, I want nine fifty caliber machine guns and a Humvee. Great. You've got it. Not a problem. Welcome to the dungeon. Hold on. You gave in really easily. Yeah, I did. Uh, that that, that um, willingness to let the players write their own future, write their own, why are they interested? Why are they moving forward? Then they say, well, I, I ate all that vanilla ice cream. It said strychnine right on the can, but it was so vanilla-y and good. And then that is my, my method. Everyone maybe has a different method, but that's my method for, a, for keeping that uh, tension or that combination going. I think it's, it's kind of easy in a pirate setting because even if the world is terrible and everyone has diseases and it's, you know, being in the Navy is worse than being a pirate, there's always gold, you know? There's always treasure and there's always rum. Um, so I think if you were gonna extrapolate that to other settings, like your characters can have things they want, this is kind of what these guys were saying, one, things they want really bad that have nothing to do with how terrible the world is. And then the world can be like an, an obstacle, but also an ally for them getting those things. So. I, th I think it also depends a little bit on, well, a lot on what your players want. Do they want to just, and I'm going to use Call of Cthulhu because that's my background, uh, how much they want to delve into the Cthulhu mythos? Do they just want to you know, 
investigate Innsmouth and discover that it's been you know overrun by D1 and D1 hybrids and, and spoilers. That's just... <laughs> wow, dude. Sorry. <laughs> They just stumbled in by accident. Yeah, and and they, they heard Badger was doing a panel. They're like, we don't care what this is about. <laughs> we are here. Wait, isn't Lovecraft a romance author? <laughs> he's he's been doing like Harlequin novels for like decades. <laughs> so steamy. <laughs> That's a different panel, but if that's what you want to move into, and <laughs> PRP and two women, I will allow it. Um, and also, you had a comment at the end. I'm so sorry. Mike, <laughs> save us. Okay. <laughs> Can we use the question quickly? Okay, so it, I'm just going to reparaphrase what everyone's just said. It's the same. We're all saying the same thing. Talk to your players, work out what they want, work out what their character's agendas are. And don't be afraid to, and, and understand that their character agendas can change and will change if you want them to change. Um, and then to let them direct things while you move the scenery around them. Yeah? Um, because whatever they want, they gave like Cthulhu, uh, you know, change whatever you want to call the front of the word Cthulhu, call try or whatever. Um, understand that uh, you, you are Sitting arsenic and everything, you know, you, you are you are twisting the world around them, You're, and you are you could, as as a keeper, everything the players see, hear, smell, touch, taste in the game world comes out of you. So you can define the world around them, but you can't define their characters. Let the character player define their characters, and then you define the world that those characters inhabit. And they're both malleable, and they can meet in this kind of fuzzy kind of mushy thing in the middle. Yeah, I'll use an example uh, that, that Ken spoke of earlier. Uh, let's say you have a player who uh, really wants to focus on their character's relationship with their dad. You start investigating the, the mythos when you begin to uh, realize how screwed up the world is and we're all going to die in this cosmic horror and we're screwed. And that's affecting the, the player's character in a, you know, sorry, I'm blanking on, on, on the term, but basically they're, they're becoming, you know, bleh. I'm having a total brain fart. Um, their, their, their relationship with their father is becoming worse and worse as they become more exposed to the mythos. So that player has to decide, well, do I want to keep on going down this road and discover more about how awful things are behind the veil, or do I want to salvage my relationship with my dad and pull back? But, but you, can, you can make that, you have the third step where they become the same thing, where sure. your knowledge, what you've learned of the mythos and quote marks, Informs you that your character belief is that actually, if I use what I know, I can improve my relationship with my father or whatever it is. Or I'm just going to be saving his life. We know with the knowledge, you know, with the knowledge that when they do, it's going to completely not be that. It's going to be far, far worse. And that, but they have bored it on themselves. Right. And as a, a keeper, you're just presenting that to the player and letting them make the choice for themselves. I'll editorialize one second because I 
could have a slightly different answer that's the same too, which is, look, build a sandbox with things in it that is about big enough that players can walk from end to end in a very long period of time, based on whatever their travel method is. Take a few things that are basically grenades, pull the pin in them, and put them underground, and let players wander around until something explodes and respond to it. Like, they'll figure out what they like about the world, they'll figure out how they respond to a telegraphed tragedy that they, to some degree, knew was coming, but maybe didn't figure out in time, and that is enough to make them care enough about the world that they will, in some way, figure out what they want to do, even if it's just make everything actively worse. And I know there was a quest couple, uh, I think you had your hand up first in the earlier round, and then even you, um, just sort of like keeping a stack. I I got three weapons because I think we have like 109,000 years of GMing experience on the board up here. Uh, I I love running long form story games. I I think that's the most fun for dark and grim dark. Contradicting my comment. No. Some metal bands are Adlock Naka, some metal bands are, you know, I feel like um, the ones that are just a, a creepy dude smiling, you know, near Othotep, he's not grimdark when he's just in his near Othotep, but if he's the bloody tongue, he gets a little grimmer and darker, maybe. I, I feel like anything with spikes is grimmer, darker, maybe that's just 
the yeah, I, nascent belief. If you get too like, if you go, you go to the cosmic side, you know, like if it gets too, oh, it came from space or it's alien, it's more cosmic, right? But yeah. if it's like this thing used to be human and it like, read these books and now it's totally corrupted itself and now it's a big crazy monster from a black dimension, that feels more grimdark to me. I don't know. I, 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 I've got a. In my head, I'm working on a formula to help you more. Um, if it was originally created by Ramsey Campbell, and I'm thinking um, Glocky, right. spikes, a, yeah, spikes, and then metal, yeah, and also Eagle and Ack, um, with that kind of the, the human, it's all just a bit wrong. Yeah, yep. that seems to me, you know, heading in the you know, the grim dark corner. Whereas yeah, I don't think love. I don't think Lovecraft was metal in the way that Campbell's metal. Yeah, I think that's far more cosmic. Uh, as you know, Ken said with, with you know, Atlantic and so on. I mean, there are aspects you can turn out. But I, 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 you know, thinking, you know, just thinking out the top of my head now, I think yeah, Ramsey Campbell is the most metal of men. Oh, I, I think we can all agree that Liverpool is grim, darker than Providence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I was going to uh, offer up Ihort because of Ihort's Park, yeah, right. and, and, and just thinking of, of that along with your examples, it, it, there's a common theme that they have a direct effect on a human, yeah. rather than cosmic horror, I mean, uh, such a massive scale, it, it's not going to affect an individual, but like Blackie and Ihort, they can directly affect you as a person, and I think that helps lend more to a grim dark. Five. I mean, even even when uh, Ramsey Campbell did a dark young of Shabnagorth, it had spikes. I mean, that's that's dedication to a bit. Right? Yeah, I, I want to see. I want to see Ramsey's, Ramsey's new books coming out with you know, with the tagline, you know, the most metal author to live. Right. Yeah. I mean, I used Howard Phillips Lovecraft the person as the villain constantly, and he's very relatable. People know a lot about him. Um, he's got a silly voice and. The image of eating peanut butter out of a jar is actually both jarring and uncomfortable. <laughs> you had a question, yes. Yeah, hey guys, I was wondering if you might be able to riff off. I was thinking of something that we talked about earlier in the, in the panel about the concept of pulp, and maybe it's just outside the window. You know, it's something that is 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 the concept of it, but maybe it's not part of your world. And I'm wondering if to turn this into a question. Maybe talk about the concept of scale, grimdark world, grimdark village or town, grimdark family unit. I mean, there's different sort of scales, and how do you, you know, the the, uh, the cultist that's worth saving, uh, maybe some family member or the lovable, uh, uh, troubled person in the tavern. This is sort of idea that every policeman doesn't have to be. Uh, uh, corrupted in with the mythos, or it's almost like there's got to be a world worth saving to sort of feel the tragedy of it all. And I'm wondering, are we talking, when we think about scale, you know, are we talking about a world? Are we talking about this little village in England or in New England? Are we talking about this little little peninsula in the Caribbean, the pirate world? So could you guys maybe riff on the idea of Grimdar in terms of is it maybe the world of the universe is not grimdark and your town is, or maybe your maybe the world is grimdark and for some reason you live in this bubble that isn't and somehow there's conflict there. So I guess I'm just wondering how you guys play with the concept of scale when it comes to the idea of grimdark and when it comes to the idea of cosmic horror. I think it's it's entirely scalable. I mean that was my point earlier, and I think 
I think it comes down to what is the story, you know, in the inverted commas, that you're trying to tell uh, the gaming table with your, you know, with your players. You know, with, with what is the shared collaboration you're doing, and that if that is going to work best for you in terms of, you know, it's in one room to it's the entire planet or universe. It doesn't really matter as long as you've got the, you know, the the the, the pillars, the foundations of what you know what what grimdark means to you and your group. Then then it's entirely fine. I think it's entirely scalable. And I think it's, it works very well because of that. Yeah. That's my I also like to oh, sorry. I mean, if you look at how Lovecraft treats, I mean, if you look at Lovecraft's New England, you think, well, that's just a grimdark New England. That's awful. But, you know, Providence in his writing is clearly wonderful. It has a grimdark side to it. The, the tunnels underneath Charles Dexter Ward's laboratory or whatever, Joseph Kerwin's laboratory. Um, you know, people in Arkham, they live in witch-haunted Arkham. Babies are kidnapped every Valpurgisnacht by a secret cabal of witches. There's looming gambrel roofs and teeming alleys and creepy old rat things running around. And people living in Arkham say, well, don't go to Innsmouth. That's grimdark. <laughs> <laughs> That's messed up. <clears throat> and even when you go to Innsmouth, though, uh, Robert Olmsted, you know, sees beauty in Innsmouth. He's drawn there by the beauty of the jewelry. He sees the architecture and what it was and what it could have been. There are places in Innsmouth that he is briefly safe or briefly uh, capable of having the illusion that he's separate from Innsmouth. And of course, the, the big joke at the end is, nope, you weren't. Um, but he just had to talk to that old guy. But that is, but that is, you know, in a specific Cthulhu sense, the notion that there is this, um, the, the universe is cosmically nihilist and uh, antagonistic. Arkham uh, is bad. The basements in Arkham are worse, but somehow you are capable of believing. Well, I have I have stats in all of these wonderful things in anthropology and history and art. That must mean something. The human society must be, as you say, worth saving. And even though we know the cosmic joke of it is, it's all snuffed out anyway. The ability to believe that it is worth saving is the moral and heroic core of Call of Cthulhu play. And so you can, again, I feel like give the players, you know, what they want. If the players want something worse, there's always something worse. Just go in the basement. I, you know, my, my players, um, uh, they're in a Baghdad cemetery. They're like, well, this isn't so bad. Well, obviously you have to go into a tunnel under a tomb now. When, well, now that got worse. And it's like, you were already in a Baghdad cemetery. You would think that nothing could be worse. Something can always be worse. And that's the sort of the flip side of something is better. Something can always be worse. And sometimes that is a matter of scale where you pull back and you say, oh, Sethagua is the size of Oklahoma. He doesn't live under Oklahoma. He's out there. And then you're like, oh, no, Sethagua is actually the entire Permian oil basin. He's under, you know, oh, that means he's, in all the cars and in all the air and in all the plastic that we make. Oh, that's not good. And so you're expanding scale as a means of horror, of revealing things are worse and worse and worse. But it's always in contrast to what you thought or believed, and that's the thing that you cling to as your character uh, drains out. I think I sort of lost the trail there, so hopefully someone can no, no, un unscrew me. You're kind of touching on what I wanted to say is uh, I like the idea of emerging grim darkness. If you guys remember that Sandra Bullock movie Bird Box, 
Or I don't, I don't, I'll try not to spoil it, but it starts very normal town, and one weird thing happens, and then gets worse, and the cosmic horror seeps in. And I really like this idea that for your players, maybe my setting is a great example. It's beautiful tropical Caribbean. Hey, there's a skeleton. He just killed a couple people on the beach. Oh, and then next week a giant coral shaga comes out and kills the whole town. And then next week a whole island is lost to the sea. Like you can expand the scale as your your the lens of your players uh, discover it. I like that idea. Um, uh, yeah, go ahead. Question. Oh, okay. good. Would you say that the one of the key differences between Cthulhu and Cosmic Horror, right, and Grimdark is that it's like 12 blind mice, right? And in Cosmic Horror, it's 12 blind mice, and you're seeing just a foot, and you think, oh, it's just this little piece, but actually it's connected to this huge, fucked up thing. But in Grimdark, no, that's the inferior, and that's another inferior, and that's another one. You can see all the elements. They're all there, and they're all shit. Picking which element you would like to like attach to a little arrow. Yeah, I kind of like that. I, for me, um, revelation goes hand in hand with cosmic horror. Yeah. Because without that, you can't comprehend it. So we have to have some sort of revelation, even if it's a revelation you can't comprehend it. Whereas I, I think Grimdark isn't about revelation. It's about you know it's bad, and you know it's going to get worse. <coughs> I, I, in, in a sense, uh, in a very simple terms, it's, yeah, I, I quite like that analogy. It's the difference between going to that state and already being in that state from get-go. What's that? I think it was first step and then working forward. How, how would you, um, if you look at the world today, you know, the perception of the world's getting worse, Um, I, you guys are familiar with Cyborg? It's a new pack of Mordor coming out. I feel like they really nailed this. Like, I actually don't really want to play that game because it's too close to where we're headed. Uh, as an artist, this whole like mid-journey AI thing is like, I'm, I saw something today where I'm like, in 10 years, we're not going to know what is real on the news. Um, so I, I feel like for me, I like to go back in time uh, as an escapism to it, not necessarily um, reflecting on it. That's just my personal take. Let's escape to the beautiful paradise that was the Great Depression. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's weird, weird kind of escape. It's like it's like a sadomasochist escapism. Yeah. I mean, I think that the. Um, Obviously, the human urge to uh, celebrate the dark awfulness of the universe as a response to the actual dark awfulness of the universe, that's back to the book of Jeremiah, right? I mean, that's one of the oldest things that we have written down. Um, and it keeps going. And, you know, some people respond to uh, things getting worse with escapism and ether parties and, and dance and Lord Peter Whimsey, and some people respond to things getting worse as H.P. Lovecraft. Uh, it's just, you know, a human response, and it's not, I don't think you can point and say this is the one response or this is the right, right response, because creative artists span a, a gigantic uh, arc of, of uh, beliefs and intentions and whatever else. Um, I think that people who like to play Grimdark, I don't think you can even pigeonhole them as saying they are 
aware of things being awful and are doing escapism. Some of them just like the joke or like heavy metal album covers or they're all, their friends are all into it and they're totally cool with that. It, so I, I'm, I'm reluctant to sort of psychoanalyze uh, cultural trends, not least because psychoanalysis is rot. Um, but I think that, uh, you know, as I have always and everywhere taught, start with Earth. And there are no shortage of grimdark places on Earth right now. And you are free to extrapolate any less grimdark place and say, oh, that's how it goes over the ledge. And then it becomes, you know, cyborg or whatever. Also, I mean, fantasy of even the most fabulous, fantastical sort of, you know, invented things are still based on some response to a real world. I mean, the Wizard of Oz is a long argument about the gold standard during the Great Depression, but no one actually remembers that part, and everyone remembers the movie because it's likable and in color and has some pretty good songs, but like, and then, you know, he immediately was like, oh, this is successful, I'm writing a sequel. I don't think his argument about the gold standard caught on as much, but, you know, I think that that kind of gets to, there's, I think, a tendency to see escapism in imagining otherwise, rather than a tendency to see it as a creative faculty and as a way that people investigate a world that they're both creating and responding to with like things they already know. I mean, on uh, I read all the uh, John Peterson books somewhat recently, and you know I think one of the things that's most interesting is RPGs have had the same conversations since 1976 when zines first emerged that are still existed copies of. You know, uh, but I think one of the best quotes there was our, our D&D is too important to leave to Gary Gygax um, <laughs> and I think that to some degree the belief that games have to have one meaning that was either created by the designer or created by the society it was written in ignores that like all literature and all created things it is both yes that's a trivially true statement and no, I mean, I, I, I don't know if I understand the paranoia as it was first written because AIs have been more part of my life than um, for, you know, the creators of it as computers were nowhere near as powerful nor was that possible. But yeah, I find it inherently funny. It's a funny game. It ended up being very forward-looking and I mean, it ended up being very wrong about a bunch of things. I mean, very paranoia and Ray Winninger's Underground are both games that were like, well, this will never happen. Won't that be hilarious? <laughs> <laughs> that then gradually became less funny as time went on. All we're missing right now is clones. Right. And that'll happen at some point. Miss, I'm, what's that? I'm missing a Bob. <laughs> yes. Alright, so this is more of a writing game perspective. Uh, but I feel like a lot of the discussion about Grimdark is almost related to like, the rising tension in terms of other sort of horror and dark genres. And this also kind of right now, Grimdark goes so far it doesn't quite go up to like cosmic horror levels where cosmic horror the tension never really breaks. Because there's always going to be Cthulhu moving over you, and there's never really a moment of release. Whereas with Grimdark, it goes almost there, and then you meet someone to death with a fever. Or, you know, somebody gets shot, and, well, at least I got shot, and I can get transformed into a monster. 
I think Grimdark can definitely go there. Uh, I mean, Mortport, the world ends. You check for it every day of gameplay. Like, it's it's just a different kind of end. Uh, I think in Cosmic Horror, to me, it feels more like a grandiose thing where you don't matter uh, because the world's so grand, and Grimdark feels more like it nothing ever mattered, and now it's over. And you can absolutely have uh, the same, uh, the, almost literally the same tension and release in Call of Cthulhu that you can in War. I mean, the num- I've run Call of Cthulhu more than I've run any other game or other Cthulhus, and the nervous laughter, the graveyard humor, the uh, I can't believe we are doing this right now joviality is a constant. <clears throat> um, it is, you know, actually, it, you know, and I don't want to say that it's a it's a threat to the game because it is the game having fun, but it makes it, you know. You, the number of times we have to come back and say, yes, that was a hilarious death. Now let us process what it means to your characters and move on. Um, that is a very common experience in both of them. And I think that that's because what I was talking about, it's a human instinct to have that gallows humor, regardless of whether you're having gallows humor about, you know, Imperial Space Marines or Azathoth or vampires. You're still the same primate baring his teeth uh, when you feel threatened. And that moment, that, that fun, beautiful moment is available to all manner of, of role play, including not at all dark. I mean, you, you get that same idiot giddiness in playing, you know, champions or whatever. So um, I, I, I wouldn't say that it systemically constrains dark humor at all. I, I mean, Chaosium back in the day did like two whole source books of oh, yeah, dark yeah. humor uh, uh, adventures. But the blood Yeah. Blood blood yeah. Blood what is it? It's a it's a it's a tagline. It's a marketing. It's a box. It's pigeonholing. I'm about to say the exact same thing. It's pigeonholing. Yeah. It's cosmic horror. Pigeonholing. We love you. Well, games companies, marketers, people that sell you things like to pigeonhole things and so direct you. But you, hey, you like the dark. You like this. Um, it's a role playing. It could be anything. If you want to play My Little Pony with Pirate Walk, I'm pretty sure you can. Oh yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. No, no, no. Isn't the reason we all love role playing games is it because you can do anything with a role playing game? Yeah, and they, they, they gear, okay, they gear for certain things and start playing kind of mechanical uh, yeah. um, you know, tones and so forth. But ultimately, you can tell whatever you want to do with any role playing game. You know, it may, may be hard work and it may not quite fit, the suit may be a bit tight. But you can do it. Um, so, I, I, you know, I do get tired of this is Grimdark, this is Cosmic Horror, this is that. You know, hey, you can play, you know, Cork Food, you can play, you can do anything, any type of horror. You want to do survival horror, Grimdark, Cosmic Horror, you want to do, you, you do more of it. Have you guys ever run like Call of Duty game where like the cosmic horror was actually like positive? Like the entities are just making the world better? They're just here to help you. Yeah, they're just, <laughs> trying, they just look ugly, but they're like, here, you have happiness. That's right. The, the, the um, uh, what is it? The Cathanid mythos. Uh, Brian Lumley's uh, Cthulhu's good twin, Cathanid. <laughs> <laughs> or why are there no Brian Lumley creatures in Trail of Cthulhu? And <laughs> <laughs> I, I also feel like exactly what Mike said. I feel like the, the, the whole the, the whole point of this term is only for marketing. It's a, I mean, the music industry has the same problem. Like they have to put these genres, look at metal, there's like 800 oh, kinds of genres for metal and none of those artists want to be in those genres. 
Exactly. They have to in order to get people to find out about them. So, like, this is a grim, dark pirate game. You know immediately what kind of game I'm talking about. Um, yeah, like Slaughter to Prevail is their death core. It's like, what the hell yeah, is that? Is, yeah, and they all bleed together, and none of that matters after you have it and you're running the game. Yeah, it's either good or bad. That's what it really comes down yeah. to. Is it a good game or a bad game? Is Are you having fun or are you not? say that the way that Robert E. Howard does it specifically is that uh, he describes the world and the act of combat so well that for a moment, um, and again, uh, what Fiona says is correct about Conan, but for the moment you're like, oh my god, what if Conan does die? That was a very sharp axe. You know, those are very bad sorcerers. This is a very horrible town full of civilized people. Ew. And Howard makes you buy all that stuff because he's so good at the literal act of describing the action and describing the setting. And in gaming terms, that's the GM's job. And so the way that you reconcile a power fantasy with genuine threat is, even in the power fantasyist of D&D, is to be really good at describing the action and uh, ideally um, presenting characters with something a little harder than they mathematically can take on to spark what Fiona was talking about, about their actual brains as opposed to, well, I rolled decks, I, I, I dodged it, I'm fine. Um, you want, you know, just to go that one little step up. And again, when Conan is fighting just some schmo, it's in a line. It's like, I killed the guard and I moved on. 
when Conan's having a real throwdown, it's a big deal. And maybe that's because he's fighting, you know, a whole bunch of things or a vulture when he's been crucified for nine days and he's down to one hit point or whatever it is. But Conan is always being described when he's on paper not quite as good as whatever he is, whatever he's fighting. And that is the moment that you as the DM get to bring in that element of it. And so for the power fantasy, I'm a big fan of saying, yeah, you are amazing. You just killed that guard. You know, it, it maybe if you feel a, a moment of weakness, you can say, uh, roll uh, dex. Well, you got the draw on him. You shot him. He's dead. Move on. Um, that's why in Nice Black Agents, there's literal rules for getting rid of moves is to feed that power fantasy so that when you fight a vampire, you know, oh, this is a real threat. This is bad news. Um, that mechanizes the system, but other games have other ways to do it. Uh, 13th Age has mood rules, whatever. There's lots of different uh, systems for this. But the, the way to do it at the table is to uh, be really, really good at describing the threat and making it feel real. The math will help you make it feel real. The rest is up to you. I, I mean, I would just interject here for me, you know, they, you know they, they go through these characters and they, they kill them off. I, I like to have the line is, do you feel bad at now? Do you feel like a big man? Do you want to kill more? Do you want to kill more? You want to kill more? Great. Great. Okay. Do you feel bad at it? So, do you feel that um, the cyberpunk genre is also considered pretty dark, and if not, what are some of the differences between cyberpunk and? I would say absolutely yes. Yeah. I would say you can definitely treat cyberpunk as great dark. Right. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, cyborg, hundred percent. Cyberpunk depends. Like I feel the new video game that came out, just not not what I picture as cyberpunk. Didn't feel like the Logan Gibson to me. It was like too pretty. Uh, but I think you can definitely treat it that way. You just got to make it feel terrible. Right. Yeah, it's, it's the genre, not necessarily the one game. Yeah, I, would, I, I consider that genre to be, if you're going to hashtag it, it would get it grimdark. I mean, yeah, definitely. I would say that, I, I would not say all cyberpunk is grimdark. I would not say that Venn diagram lines up that way. What I would say is cyberpunk makes so many of the same sorts of assumptions you need for grimdark that it's very easy to turn it into a grimdark world or to treat it as a grimdark world or to write or play a grimdark uh, cyberpunk game, uh, cyberpunk genre, not cyber, or even cyberpunk the RPG. Um, I think that though you can look at something like uh, Neil Stevenson's The Diamond Age, classic cyberpunk, and again, we're looking at a actually nuanced world. It's not one endless Blade Runner screen grab. It's, you know, a whole bunch of stuff is going on, and parts of the world are perfectly nice, and they have pizza delivery, and parts of the world are just absolute um, uh, boiling piss oceans in Fiona's literally inescapable metaphor. Um, <laughs> I'm definitely stealing. And, um, and, and that, to me, makes the world feel more real, which then makes the human actions feel more important, as opposed to just, you know, how can I deal with these horrible Japanese megacorps that keep sending Shadowy Mr. Johnson to blow my arms off? It's like, well, I don't know, maybe just stop. Just stop doing that. It seems horrifically uninteresting. Um, and then this is where I think uh, I would come around where Mike is saying that you need that level of hope or that level of at least a mosaic in the world. And, um, uh, you know, it may be as, as crass as I just want to be so rich that I can afford to hire people to go around and blow people's arms off. But at some level, you, you, you know, even if it's just the executive suite, 
there's a place that you can get to uh, that you can uh, aim for. And I, I feel like, you know, you can play any game. We've talked any game anyway, but Cyberpunk makes some assumptions that, that work better than, you know, other games do. Yeah, um, Cyberpunk definitely is set up for Grimdark. It's got all the possible widgets that you would want to, to have it be Grimdark, but it doesn't have to be. I mean, like Johnny Mnemonic, pull that big example, uh, is not all grimdark all the time. I mean, ironically, though, one of the best cyberpunk games, Eclipse Phase, while literally having a, an apocalypse and all manner of god-awfulness in it, is not grimdark because you can download yourself. You've got a, you've got a, a very easy, very simple resurrection spell over and over and over in Eclipse Phase. Eclipse Phase is not about that. Eclipse Phase is, is a sort of a picaresque travelogue reaction to the horror around you sort of a game. And it's a magnificent game on a lot of levels. But that, you know, unfragility of fundamental character, because, oh, I kept a robot copy, haha, um, is, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's annoying, right? You broke your phone, now you've got to back up, but it's not, you know, death. Um, and, uh, and, and so something as, as great and pure and good a cyberpunk thing as Eclipse Phase, slides out from under Grimdark because the technophilia of the, or the techno universality of the setting undoes that Grimdark ethos that a lot of the setting would otherwise imply. I think it's also, um, you can layer these genres, right? I mean, because I, I completely agree that, you know, Cyberpunk isn't Grimdark, but it can be. Um, and I think, you know, it, again, depending on story the kind of tone you are, you're trying to get i mean you could make it grim and darker by actually presenting it as not grim dark and let the layers begin to you know disintegrate and peel through play to reveal that it yeah it is grim dark. you know because that might actually have a better effect on the players because it, it, it plays with their expectations in in an appropriate way to get the result that you want that they now realize it's far far um, but again, that's a, that's a particular conscious style choice that may work, it may not. Um, I believe we were getting a time signal. Yeah, we're, we're over, I think. Oh. Are we? Twelve fifteen, right? Uh, Twelve is where it theoretically ends. Yeah. Oh, there so we go. That was probably our ten minutes. Signal. Signal. No, 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 that was hard. They, they, they want to clear the room and defumigate or something. <laughs> but uh, I guess if we do have nine, if anyone has a last question, you know, really eager to ask, sure. Um, is there a favorite um, experience at the table, like a fun anecdote about, uh, like, whether it's going over games on the current or like the, the kind of, uh, uh, what would you say, like the, the kind of, like, existential, like, overcoming existentialism or something that you want to share with my Okay, so my quick one is I played, well, my son uh, ran Borg for me. Um, uh, he gave me a couch with a, with a, with a, like a one inch piece of paper that with a number written on it. I mean, that was a couch. And all I remember from that game is there was a, there was a, a dark cave uh, filled with um, shit. And, um, and I got halfway through before the thing in the shit, it ate me. <laughs> and, uh, and, and then uh, he turned and said, that's more pork. He said, good night, and walked away. <laughs> so that, that's, uh, 
can't top that. Yeah, I was going to say. I can't top that. Note to self, make Mike go last on those. Yeah. But look for shitboard from the maker of Ponyboard. <laughs> well, uh, I think if we're going to wrap then, if everyone could please give everyone a round of applause. Can I just plug on Saturday, Mike and I are going to play Pirate Board. We're doing a live stream across the hall at 5 o'clock. R&D. I'll see you all in the lovely audience. So you should plug yourselves as well. Right. In the privacy of your own hearts. This podcast is a proud member of the Legends of Tabletop broadcast network. For more gaming-related content, please visit www.legendsoftabletop.com.